tonight for our study in the end times and what are the signs of the times. We're going to go to three different things. Um, one is to wrap up something that I kind of missed, and I didn't want to miss it because I'm trying to really cover these really well for you and to uh, make sure I get them firmly in place in your mind. Um, and then uh, a couple of others. One, you might say, well, that's kind of a weak one. But I think it's important that we recognize that there are no weak prophecies, that every one of them has to come true. And, we, and why is that important is because when we go back, there are some weak, quote-unquote, verses about Jesus Christ too, but He fulfilled them. Every single word of prophecy must be fulfilled, including those that we might say, well, that's kind of, I guess you could say that kind of attitude. And we don't want to have that. Um, we can uh, sit there and say, well, was Jesus take, did Jesus take the Nazarene vow or was he from the city of Nazareth? And that's why it was called Nazarene. Um, and that's something we can discuss sometime. But uh, ultimately, it was fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Had to be. And so when we look at the uh, prophetic word, both, and we're going to be somewhat in the New Testament as well, tonight and we're going to next week move into the New Testament almost exclusively um, because I think some of what is often associated with the end times is really talking about millennial kingdom with regards to the temple mount. Um, we're going to uh, look at several things, three of them tonight, and that's uh, going to be ambitious. Uh, and so we need the Lord's help. So let's get that. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for uh, your Work amongst us your promise to be in our midst uh, where we are gathered in your name. And Lord, we desire your name to be glorified. We want to know your word. We want to know it uh, not only to increase our knowledge, but also our expectation tonight. And with increased expectation of your coming, that we might also sense the urgency of walking according to your word. Lord, uh, open our minds, our eyes, our ears to your truth. And by your Spirit, you guard, might guard this time as well. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. So, the Lord is coming. Does the last generation of the church have nothing to expect before His coming? That has always been the question. And in the imminent return group of people, which we are a part of, that believe in the imminent return, that is, at any moment, Christ could come back, uh, we have long stated that there was no prophetic fulfillments necessary between Pentecost and Christ's coming. And uh, I have modified that in my own belief systems over the last 12 years or so, 13 years, um, because when I look at Scripture and I find that it gives you specific prophetic statements that extend it, because to say from Pentecost to Christ's coming that there's no fulfillment wipes out all of what Jesus taught about wars and rumors of wars, about famines, earthquakes, pestilence, that he told the disciples they would endure. And then particularly the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which Christ prophesied both in Matthew and Luke. And we're looking at Luke tonight a little bit. And so we know that there were prophetic fulfillments that had to occur between Pentecost, the beginning of the church, and Christ's second coming that the church should have been looking for. In addition to that, we have uh, the presentation of Revelation from John uh, and uh, some statements by John as well as Paul and Peter 
that gives us an expectation. We should be looking for something. And then finally, we have statements both given to Daniel as well as to Habakkuk and others that seem to intimate that the generation that sees Christ's return will have an understanding of prophetic teaching different than their predecessors. That is that the wise among them will be able to understand that scripture and bring it in and see it happening around them and know this is the time of Christ's coming. And that is given, that promise is given to Daniel. And so um, while we hold to an imminent return, that does not negate the fact that there had to be certain things occur. Uh, and it's interesting that those same people who say there's no prophecy that needs to be fulfilled before the Lord's return um, got very, very excited when Israel became a nation in 1948 and said, aha, aha. Well, there shouldn't have been any aha, aha, because we weren't looking for anything to aha about. Just Christ's return was the next prophetic event. But now suddenly we have Israel on the scene and we say, oh, this is, so now this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Well, if that's the case, then for all those years that Israel wasn't in existence, the church should have been looking for Israel fulfilling prophecy by coming into existence. Um, it would have been right to understand imminent return as that of being watchful. And I believe that when you handle the imminent return passages of Scripture, you'll always find that word that you are watchful, that you are on guard, that you are, that you are looking, that you are observant of the Scriptures, not only in terms of fulfilled prophecy, but observant livers of its truth as you watch the culmination of the times of the Gentiles occur. And we haven't really been able to do that. And because we haven't been able to do that in generations past, um, to encourage ourselves in the coming of the Lord, uh, we simply said that there was no prophecy that needed to be fulfilled. Well, now we live in a time period where all those prophetic statements are being fulfilled or have been fulfilled. And yes, I'm using past tense because they, most of these have already occurred. We are really down to just a very small little bit of prophecy that we have not seen in our generation. And by our generation, I mean um, those people who have fortunate to live about 40 years or so. Uh, and because we're stretching back into about um, 50 years ago or 60 years ago. Um, but it, it's fulfillment it really is not, I think, many of them until the 90s. And we've looked at some of those, but the pre-fulfillments and such we talked about last week. So, we're going to get into a couple. I want to take you back to Ezekiel 36 first. Because I missed something that was pretty important. And uh, it did happen in 1948. Remember last year, well, last week, I wanted to go back in time chronologically. Um, two weeks ago, I started out with the return, which was the bringing together of Israel in the 1990s and forward. The great influx, the great exodus from the nation's of the world into Israel that we have seen and are seeing. Uh, then last week we looked at the blossoming of Israel uh, and the fruitfulness that is there in her that God declared would happen when uh, not because they were holy or because they were serving Him, but because He wanted to uh, defend His name. And we are seeing that happen. So things written thousands of years ago, we are seeing happening today. And we're not stretching or twisting the truth to make that or uh, trying to uh, manipulate it at all. We're really just taking it right out of the Scripture to say, aha, see? 
And there it is. One of the things we looked at in Ezekiel 36 last week was with regard to the matter of uh, the Israel becoming a nation again. In preparation for their arrival, God says, I'm going to replenish the land and they will become fruitful again. It says to the mountains, to the fields, to the valleys, to uh, the rivers, that it was just going to replenish them and they're going to become fruitful again for his name's sake. Uh, and that promise is there. And of course, verse 8 was the key one. It says, for they are about to come. And so in preparation for this great influx of people, God says, I'm going to return a blessing to them. And so this would have been something that we should have expected to happen in preparation for this church age event of this regathering of Israel for the nations and so that there would be a people called Israel that the man of sin could engage a treaty with, uh, with the nations around them to set off the seven years of God's wrath. Well, in the midst of this, I neglected to really point out something very important. And I want to do that um, here in the midst of this. And, and we've got to go to the kind of the end of the chapter here. Uh, and I want to look at it just briefly, but it's important. Uh, let's go to um, let's go to verse 31 again. We studied uh, 31. Oh, let's go to 29. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways. So there comes repentance, finally. Not repent and then be blessed, but you are blessed and then you will repent. Which is very odd. That's an odd order for God to do things in. Uh, remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. and You will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the wasted, desolate, ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it and, it, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock offered as a holy sacrifices, like the flock of Jerusalem on its feast days. So shall the ruined cities be filled with the flocks of men. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. And again, uh, you might say, well, how do I know this is referring to the church age event and not a millennial kingdom event? And one of the key statements here is that these cities are going to be fortified. I want you to notice that, that God says you're going to come in here and be able to rebuild your cities. Uh, not only are you going to be uh, like the Garden of Eden, people are going to say it's like the Garden of Eden there. They can grow anything and everything they grow there is just going to go... Uh, gangbusters and they do to the point that they have migratory birds that they hadn't seen there for generations literally hundreds of years they hadn't seen these migratory birds that are there all the time 
that have changed their migrational patterns to go back in and birds that they hadn't seen there are now being seen there and best and, and sometimes they are staying there. But we find this statement saying that when you rebuild, not only are you going to have this Garden of Eden-like place, but uh, the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are going to be fortified and inhabited. They're going to be rebuilt, but they're going to be able to be fortified. And that is, they're going to be able to defend themselves. And this is not the condition that we see Israel in, in the Millennial Kingdom. In the Millennial Kingdom, as Ezekiel later on is going to describe, or in just a few chapters, uh, describes Israel as without bars, I'm sorry, without walls, without gates, um, and without any defenses, because the Lord will defend her. And so at the end of the Millennial Kingdom, when Gog and Magog rise up against, when Satan is released from the bottomless pit, stirs up the nations again, Gog, Magog form the, the, the core of that uh, army, that there's really all the nations coming against Israel, um, we find that Israel's in a condition of absolute defensive, defensive, defenselessness. There we go. Um, Israel has no defenses. They've never needed it. For a thousand years they've gone without war. The instruments of war are really gone. They have beaten swords into plowshares. They are total peace. But in this time period that Ezekiel is talking about in this chapter, the cities will be fortified. Israel will have the capacity to defend herself and will do so. Um, and that is a promise by God that they will be able to defend themselves and they will be able to fill these cities up. They will be able to defend those cities and the nations are just going to have to deal with that fact. And they will know that if you attack Israel, you're going to have to deal with a force that has God behind it. And if you talk to the people of Israel, even to this day, and you talk to them about some of their early wars as a nation, they will talk and they'll just admit it freely that, um, you know, we can't explain militarily the victories that we had. We had, we had less forces. Our forces weren't as developed as the others. And uh, I remember one tank commander when he was being interviewed um, just said, we thought we had lost. And all of a sudden they turned and ran. He was down and he was just about the only tank and he knew that his tank on that field of battle that day was in bad shape. And he says, I think we had like three shells left, but they ran away. And we serve a mighty God. And so the nations around them will know God is working there and is doing some spectacular things. But I want you to note that one thing and that is, is that Israel is defending herself. Also in Ezekiel, by the way, um, that I didn't use extensively, as well as in other prophecies, uh, we have statements about that it will not be Ephraim and Judah. And that's in chapter 35. Um, uh, maybe not. No, I'm sorry, chapter 35 is the curse on Ephraim, is Edom. Um, that's Mount Sire, not Ephraim, but Sire. Um, uh, it's right here, and I just turned the page and didn't... Ah, it's not a page back, it's a chapter forward. All right, I knew it was here, so I was like, I marked it in my Bible, so I didn't write it down on my paper. Um, Let's go to chapter 37, and we have this statement in verse 21 
Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations wherever they have gone and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. I'll make them one nation in the land. That's very important. On the mountains of Israel, one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I'll deliver them from all their dwelling place in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. Um, and so in preparation for Christ's coming, uh, about seven so years from now, uh, Israel's gathered from the nations. They are made one nation. I think that's also something we need to note. Uh, when Israel was being formulated as a nation, uh, the original intent was that this would be called the country Judah. That was the original plan to call it Judah, the home of the Jews. Jews are, when you say Jews, you're not referring to Israel. You're referring only to one tribe, and that tribe is Judah. And so we, everyone talked about the Jews going back to their promised land, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. You're really only talking about one tribe of Judah. And the men gathered together, and women gathered together there in the formulation of this nation made a decision. That decision was, no, we will not call our nation Judah. We will call our nation Israel to be inclusive of all the tribes. And though the predominant tribe overall in all of Israel is the tribe of Judah, um, let there be no mistake, it, it overflows with Jews predominantly. But they recognize we are going to be one nation and this prophecy that they're going to be gathered not as two nations so that there's going to be a revival of Judah and then a revival of the northern tribes of Israel. Oh no, there's going to be just one nation and that one nation is in preparation for the one king that was going to come and rule them, Jesus Christ, the son of David. And so that's given on later in Ezekiel. But it's but I think it's a powerful statement that here... Back in 1948, um, they looked at the situation. Even though all the men on there, as far as we know, were of Jewish lineage, that is of Judah, their determination was no, even though that was the intent that we're going to have a nation called Judah, we want to make sure we are inclusive of all the tribes and we are going to call ourselves Israel. And there on the map is Israel. When you see that name of that country, Israel, you need to go to Ezekiel 37 and say, wow, God says they're never going to be divided into two kingdoms again. And he says when they gather into their own land, they're going to be one nation. Be, they're no longer going to be two nations. Never again. And so we have a couple of things, statements here uh, tucked away here in Ezekiel in the midst of a big prophecy that we look at and say, wow, yeah, the nation is just bountiful and it's just been blessed and God certainly has fulfilled that. But there's two very specific statements that could have easily not occurred. But because of their occurrence, we can look at that and say, well, God's word is true and faithful. Every single thing God said would happen is happening or has happened. This has happened. People, I really want to get you excited about that. This has happened. 
God has already brought Israel into her land and made her one nation. All we are waiting for is for her one king to take over that one nation. Now, they're going to follow a false king, man of sin. They're going to fall into his hands for seven years, but it's the, it's the preparation of a nation for a one king. And they will repent. They will realize, oh, we are stupid sinners. It will happen. It's not happening yet. There's a lot of arrogance still going on in Israel. And it's not that we agree with everything Israel does because they're Israel. No, they're making a lot of foolish errors. Um, and uh, But God is at work and He's going to accomplish His purposes. But we have uh, a, a well-fortified nation, well-fortified cities that are capable of defending themselves. And by the way, if you go there, you need to go visit the wall. And I don't mean the wailing wall. I mean the wall. I mean that wall that snakes around the border. That is the wall that says um, we're going to defend our border. And they built that massive concrete wall uh, around our border. You can see it from a distance. I mean, just snakes around out there. And you're like, What's, well, that's to protect ourselves. That's not what the millennial kingdom describes. The millennial description of Israel is without walls. They are not without walls today. They are a fortified place. Boy, are they fortified. I don't even know that the United States would really want to mess with Israel. As powerful as we are. Um, they are they, like I said last week, you know, our guys got whooped by them. By th- their pilots creamed us in exercises. Um, we don't want to mess with them. No one does. And so they are fortified and they are one nation. Two little itty bitty pieces of prophecy, but they matter. Why do they matter? Because I don't have to manipulate the text to say this is that. This has been done. This is today already fulfilled in your midst to the letter. And we should be a little excited about that. Now, and so I wanted to include that. I missed those last week. I didn't catch those two. Ran out of time because I'm really committed to getting you out of here at, at 8 o'clock. And so I wanted to catch those tonight and to uh, encourage you with those. Now, let's go to another one. Psalm 102. Psalms, that's a prophecy book? Oh, yes, it is. It's a wonderful prophecy book. Um, there's several great prophecies about Jesus Christ in the Psalms, right? About not only his birth, but his death, his resurrection. Those are all Psalms. And so, yes, the book of Psalm is very good for prophecy. Let's go to 102. And we're going to pick up, um, 102. Let's pick up in verse 12, because this is where God's going to start keeping his promises. The Psalmist has some other things in the other, his prayers and things and, and some of the things personally that are going on. But then he opens it up and says, God, you have a plan for things nationally as well. Let's look at it. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever. Verse 12, Psalm 102. And the remembrance of your name to all generations. You will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come. So, prophets, he's saying, listen, there's going to be a set time 
in your design of the ages. There's going to be a set time. When that time comes, you're going to bless Israel. And it has nothing to do with how Israel's living. It has everything to do with you determining this is the time. When it comes, there's nothing that's going to stop God's working this. Because it's based upon the forever God. It's going to be based upon Him. That He's going to make sure He's remembered to all generations. He's going to rise and have mercy on Zion for the time of her to favor her. Um, and the indication here is that they didn't do anything to earn it. And that, in my mind, connects it directly to the other passages we've been studying. That they didn't do anything to deserve this. Like Ezekiel says, I'm doing this for my name's sake, not because you are repentant and righteous. So let's look at what he's going to do. Your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. Isn't that great? How many of you are just excited now? How many of you are thrilled? How many of you go, wow? Well, you should. The only indication that we have that the time of Israel's favor is coming from this portion of Scripture, that there's going to be, a, when we just know it, it's time. It's time. God's favor is on the brink of happening. It's here. What is the indication uh, in the land and among the people? Um, well, this is the indication. Here it is. Your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. Pastor, why is that so important? Because only, and I mean this, only in the last century have the, has the dirt and stones of Israel been important to anybody. We talked about how desolate it was and just how uh, no vegetation, there was just no activity, there was nothing going on there. And really, since the Byzantine Empire no one cared about the dirt in Israel. No one cared about the rocks. No one. The Byzantines were the last people uh, until the modern era, uh, in the last 70 years or so, that built anything on the Temple Mount. And it's still there. What they built is still there. We're going to talk about that more next week. And so the Byzantine period was the last time anyone did anything um, and so we have this period of time when suddenly people are interested, um, not just in the big rocks, but even in the very dust of Israel. And I believe that what prophecy is stating here is that the servants of God, and this isn't just Israel, I believe this is all Christendom as well, are, have this sudden interest in excavating and rediscovering the heritage of Israel in her rocks and in her dirt. And when you go to Israel today, it, you go from one dig to another dig. That's what you're doing. And they're uncovering incredible things. That no, wait, no, really? That's there? And I remember when we went and we visited Caesarea by the sea, and Josephus described this, and the tour guy was saying it. Josephus said that this was here, and, and that there was a, a great, um, what's those things that they run around? A great, not a track, but it looks like a track for horses. You know, Ben-Hur running the chariots around it. A hippodrome. There you go. Uh, that it was there and, and it was, you know, it was described by Josephus. And they're like, oh, he was mistaken. There's no way that was it. And they're just digging and they're digging. And, and lo and behold, what do they find? Exactly what Josephus said was there. That no one said was ever there. And there it is. 
And now it's very well developed, and you can actually go out there and race chariots now if you really have a chariot and want to do that. Um, I don't know if they'll let you, but um, you can do that now. It's right there, and you walk out there and say, whoa, and there's like, here it is. We did, who knew? Josephus knew. The first century Christians knew. But now suddenly we care. We went into another area, and, and uh, it was just a dump. I mean, it was just a... A, a, a field. It was just a, there was a, a tell over there. They said, "Yeah, there's probably something here um, because there's a mound over there. A tell is a mound that is made by generations building on top of generations, and so it creates what's called a tell, um, T-E-L. And uh, and we often start our excavations there. And so they're like, "Well, there's a tell over there. So certainly there was something here sometime. Um, and um, there's this kind of." evened out area between the highway and the tell out there and, and someone just started digging around because people are interested in digging around. And now you go there and it is, I would say, arguably the most developed ruins I saw in all of Israel. They found a lost city. Not because they were looking for that city. They found it because people are interested in the dirt and in the rocks. And they're excavating everywhere. And they're discovering all these places. And what it is telling is is telling the nations that every place that the Lord said was there in His Word is really there. And today, one of the things I challenge young people with in proving the Bible wrong is go dig in the dirt of Israel and you will find every place described in this book there. Every archaeologist in Israel has this book. Whether they believe in the God of this book or not, they have this book as their guide. And everything gets found where this book says it is. And here the Bible says that when the servants of God take interest in the stones and the dust of Israel, know something, the time of her favor has come. The time of her mercy to receive mercy from the Lord has come. When people start getting excited about digging, and 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 I got to tell you that that I had people on that tour on our tour that said, "Well, this wasn't dug up when I was on the last tour. This wasn't part of the tour before because it wasn't here." And I kind of like to go back now. It's been what five years, three years. I like to go back now because I'm there's probably a lot of other things dug up. And I remember they took us to one place and they said, this is from the time of Abraham. We were like, Abraham? Yeah, that doorway was from the time of Abraham. And it's still being excavated. That the nations might fear the Lord. The name of the Lord. The kings of the earth are glory. The Lord, in that period of time, when the servants of the Lord are interested in the stones and dust of Israel... The Lord shall build up Zion. He shall appear in His glory. He shall regard the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer. Isn't that incredible? God says there's going to be an appointed time when I will show favor to Israel for my name's sake because I am the God of all generations and the one thing you're to look for that that time has come is when my servants take interest in the stones and dust of Israel. It didn't happen during the time of the Turks. It didn't happen uh, during the time of the British control of that area. 
Um, they were into the antiquities in Egypt. It really only happened in the time of Israel in these last 70 years or so. Well, yeah, and now that Israel's in the nation and has even greater interest in it, and we have uh, the uncovering of caves and, and of walkways and passageways and an incredible amount of detailed information on city after city and region after region of Scripture. And what does it affirm for us? That God is the God. You cannot take the Book of Mormon and take a shovel and walk around Missouri and find anything described in the Book of Mormon. Dig all you want. You will never find it. No one ever has. Because it's pretend he made it up. It's a lie. You walk around Israel with a shovel. First of all, you'll need a permit. Um, but you walk around Israel with a shovel, you will find what this book declares. Exactly where and to the extent. And of course, Caesarea by the Sea is a great example because right there they have it in prominent display, this stone they dug up that everyone said Pontius Pilate was a fabrication of the apostolic writers and then suddenly they uncover a stone that has guess whose name on it, Pontius Pilate. Oh, I guess he really was a person. There's his name in stone. We just dug it out of the dirt that's been buried for thousands of years. There he is. That the nations might fear the Lord and know that His name is great. When that time comes, and that time has come, know that God is going to build up Zion, that is Jerusalem. We're going to talk about that a little bit here. Um, That's a city, by the way. Not just Israel, but Zion. And have mercy on Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's time will come when they take interest in the stones and dust of Israel. Isn't that great? And again, you might say, well, Pastor, that's kind of, that's not one of the top ten, is it? Well, maybe not. But every prophecy that references this future time must come true. And every evidence, when you bind these evidences all together, um, are how can you talk against it? In our lifetime, Israel's being cleaned up. And, and literally, um, every shovelful of soil in Israel is sifted three times to make sure they don't miss anything. We got to go to a dig while we were there. They're, guess what they're digging through now? Um, in the city of David, they are digging through the Davidic palace. And you go down there and you can pick up pottery shards and stuff. They're everywhere. That's not critical data to them. They know pottery. Um, they're looking for other things and it's an active dig right now. And it, Well, I can't say that because that was three years ago. It was an active dig three years ago. They had the big canopy over it and you walk in there and what are they discovering? This is the palace of David and here it sits. Why is this so important to Israel? Because one of the contention was is that their history was made up and they have no claim to the land. That's what the Arab nations around want to stay. That's what the Palestinians want to say. We have as much claim as they do to it. We have a claim through Muhammad to the Temple Mount. Blah, blah, blah. 
you bring out your scriptures, you you find what this is, and we find that it's all Israelite, 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 and the claims of scripture are still there all the way back to the time of Abraham. Wow. Great period we live in. This prophecy, Psalm 102, 13 and 14, is. Not will be. Is. In our day. Turn with me, lastly, to Luke 21. I got seven minutes. Luke 21. Very direct prophetic statement. This is the Christ Jesus himself teaching. And by the way, if you have a red letter edition Bible, the red letters aren't more important than the black ones. Just to let you know, they're all God's word. But here we go. These are red letters. Not in mine. I don't have one of those. Luke 21, look at verse 24. Um, there's a lot that talks about, this is really a passage, verse 20. Let's go back to verse 20. Talking about the fall of Jerusalem. But when you, that is the first generation Christians, the disciples, the apostles, their age, when you, Israel, see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, when you, the young church, then know this desolation is near, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those who are in the midst of her depart, let not those who are in the country enter her, for these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. That already happened. That is describing 70 A.D. All of that occurred with absolute precision. All of that already happened to Jerusalem. It was surrounded in 66 A.D. Um, They had an opportunity because Cestius, the commander, for some reason, even though he was ready to breach the walls, turned around and left with his entire uh, army Um, And it gave Israel an opportunity, particularly the Christians in Jerusalem, to escape the city before Titus shows up, seals it up, and destroys it. Everything Christ describes in, in Matthew and Luke and then in Revelation has occurred perfectly. We don't look for a future time like that, uh, comparative to this. But I want to look at verse 24 because that has something interesting to say. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captives into all the nations. So we're being gathered from all the nations. This describes when they were dispersed into all the nations. And then we have a little phrase. How long will they be into the all the nations? The last phrase of this verse says, Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Wow. Okay, and I probably should have read this passage a couple weeks ago, but I kept it today because I believe it's referring specifically to Jerusalem, not just all of Israel. But it says that Jerusalem is going to be essentially a waste city. Israel is going to be carried away, and that's going to go on until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That this city will be trodden under by the Gentiles until... That time is finished. 
And so when we start to see Jerusalem fall into the hands of Israel, what does it say? What did Jesus say that would mean when Jerusalem again belongs to the country, the people called Israel? It means that our time has come to its end. The times of the Gentiles, the times of the church are done. That that generation, that that period of time, when you see Israel fall back into the hands, Jerusalem itself will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, we see all of Jerusalem except for one little bit really under Israeli control. Um, if you recall that Jerusalem was not originally given to Israel, um, it was given to Jordan. And uh, the, one of the wars, Israel went in there, took Jerusalem, took the West Bank. They created a peace treaty with Jordan. Jordan ceded all of that to them. It belongs to them. Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. They own it. It is divided into quarters. There's an Arab quarter, a Christian quarter, a Jewish quarter, and a Greek Orthodox quarter, right? And so there's there's four quarters, but Israel is there. There's really only one portion of Israel that no Israelite walks on. No Israelite is supposed to go there. And sadly, it's the Temple Mount. It's still under control of Gentiles. But we're not going to get upset about that because the prophecy says something specifically about that little piece of property. But here Jesus says, listen, the whole city is going to be trampled underfoot. That is, it's going to be under the control of Gentiles. And it's fascinating that Great Britain and the United States and the UN really tried to keep Jerusalem out of the control of Israel. They tried. They said, we're going to grant Jerusalem and the west bank of the Jordan to the country of Jordan. We tried to keep Israel out of Jerusalem. God says, no, it's time. And Israel takes control of Jerusalem. And brethren, by what Jesus says, that means something. That when Israel has possession and control of Jerusalem, our time is finished. The church age is full. It's coming to its conclusion. It is, it is of now urgent that we recognize the gospel go out as quickly, as forcefully, as, as powerfully as possible um, because it, it, the days are coming to its close. This process of Jerusalem coming back under the control of Israel is... It's not to come. It's not something we're waiting for. It is. And therefore, we must conclude that the church age is nearly done within our lifetime, within moments or months or years. We must conclude that. How long has Israel had control of Jerusalem has been hotly debated. 
Um, but when Jordan, the prophecy we studied before two weeks ago, talked about that Jordan would obey Israel has been fulfilled. Um, they, the ones to whom it was given, ceded it to them. So I start right there. I say, listen, the church age um, is on its last days. And it is time for us to be about its business because its business is about to be concluded. The bell is gong. Do you know that bell? Well, we don't use a bell anymore. Back in the day, it used to be a bell. Um, the little announcer has gotten on the PA system and says, our store is closed. Please make your selections and head to the checkout line at this time. And that's what you should be hearing about the church age when you read something like this and you see what's going on in Israel. The age is closed. Make your selections and move to the checkout line because we are checking out, folks. The age is closed. And we need to be about making that desperate, you know, and you feel sorry for the guy that just showed up in the store five minutes earlier and like, oh, I've got to make my selection and get the thing. i got to hurry. Yes, oh, that we would hurry up and get our selection and get to the checkout. Because the store's closed. And it's time. And God has said the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. When Israel is no longer trampled underfoot, that is under control by Gentile forces, but rather when they are under control of it themselves. Know that that will be the end of the church age. And it is no mistaking that we have these signs to tell us something. And that telling us something is um, be urgent. Be urgent. In your consideration of ministry, of the gospel, of Christian living, of uh, without compromise to the truth of God's word, recognize an urgency about it. For truly, the sun is set on the church age. We are in twilight. There's still light. There's still hope. But we've already seen the sunset. We've seen it. Israel controls Jerusalem. Precisely as Christ said it would. Let's pray.